Hello, and welcome to our 2022 season opener episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sarah Churgan, veterinarian at Ocean Park in Hong Kong. Hi, Dr. Churgan. Welcome to Aquadox. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're going to have a great time. And one of the things I absolutely love about podcasting is that you can really talk to anyone anywhere. And right now I'm speaking to you from all the way across the world in Hong Kong. So what got you to start working in Hong Kong? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we have to go back to my origin story to get the whole feeling for how it it all went down. So I grew up in Tempe, Arizona, but somehow from a very early age, I knew that I wanted to work with aquatics, especially marine mammals. I really wanted to move to the Pacific Northwest and study killer whales and just be on a boat all day long. That was my dream. But it just so happened that my parents went on a trip when I was around 12. They were in the Bahamas and they met an aquatic animal veterinarian there. I still don't know who this person was, but they were telling him about me. And he said to them something along the lines of, oh, well, it's pretty hard to get the kind of job that she really wants in marine biology these days. A lot of times you end up cleaning boats because you can't find a job or you end up, you know, studying shellfish instead of studying killer whales and so actually what your daughter should do is become a veterinarian and she should specialize in aquatic animals so my parents came home and told me this and i come from a medical family and my parents are both doctors so i was like oh this sounds like a perfect idea. Little did I know that it's incredibly hard to become an aquatic animal veterinarian. I should have thrown that advice out the window and it's not necessarily what I would tell anybody today because it's a very hard path, but I set my sights on veterinary medicine at that point. And I did summer internships at aquariums and worked with marine mammals and during undergrad and then got into vet school at Texas A&M and continued to have aquatics as my focus and my love, you know, was very involved in aquatic and zoo stuff during vet school and also did externships during fourth year at zoos and aquariums. And then I went to a small animal rotating internship and spent the year working on just dogs and cats and said, oh, I'm never going to be able to be a zoo vet. That was a crazy dream. And I pretty much gave up on it, decided not to apply for residencies or anything. And I was just going to move home and be a small animal vet. And then it just so happened that a internship position opened at the Phoenix Zoo, which was my home zoo. For the very first time, they'd never had an intern before. And so I was planning to move home anyway. So I applied for that job. I got the internship. After that, I got a residency at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee County Zoo. And as I finished my residency in 2014 and was applying for jobs, my best friend, Meredith Clancy, who's a a veterinarian at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, emailed me a job posting for Ocean Park, Hong Kong. And we both kind of looked at each other and said, could we live in Hong Kong? Because we were both applying for jobs at the time. And one of my mentors at Wisconsin had actually also lived in Hong Kong and worked as a veterinarian. And I showed him the job posting and he was like, oh, Ocean Park is a really good place. You should apply for that job. And I did. And I was offered the job and I took a huge leap across the ocean. And actually the first time I stepped foot in Hong Kong or Asia was the day that I moved here. So it was quite an adventure. 
Oh my goodness. What an adventure. Wow. Okay. So you got to Hong Kong. You had never been in Asia before. Now you have this incredible job where you're a veterinarian at a very large institution. What were some of the main challenges that you faced when you first got there? That's a good question. It was actually an easier transition than I expected. Hong Kong, we like to call it Asia light. English is one of the two official languages in Hong Kong. It used to be part of Britain or at least kind of a British territory. And so it has heavy, heavy Western influence. But there are certainly huge differences and cultural differences. One of the big things is just that most Hong Kongers speak Cantonese as their first language, one of the hardest languages to learn in the world. And no, I still don't speak it after seven years here. So the majority of the day-to-day work amongst, say, the animal trainers takes place in Cantonese because that's their native language and that's what they're comfortable speaking in. The official language of Ocean Park for business purposes is English. But when we go and speak to the trainers and hear about an animal that's not doing well or that they have a concern about, it's much better if they can explain what's going on in Cantonese because then you get the full story. So our veterinary nurses, we call them nurses in Hong Kong as opposed to vet techs, one of their primary roles is to be translators for the veterinarians. So all four of us veterinarians at Ocean Park come from different backgrounds and only one of the four of us speaks Cantonese. So our nurses come around with us for every visit and they are all native Hong Kongers who speak Cantonese and English. So they will speak to the trainers and get the full story and then they'll reflect back to us and translate. So of course that's a huge difference from practicing in the U.S. where very occasionally you have clients who aren't Spanish speakers or do speak a different language but conducting every day business with translation was a big adjustment. There are also just, you know, a lot of cultural differences. One of the big differences in Asia that has been an adjustment is attitudes towards euthanasia. So there's a lot of Buddhist influence here and a lot of other traditional Asian and Chinese religions that really don't believe in taking life. And so there's a lot of reluctance to euthanize in general around Asia. My friends who are small animal veterinarians in Hong Kong have struggled with it much more because pet owners here really don't euthanize their animals. It is just so ingrained that that is not an option and you know that that's not something that we do. At Ocean Park, we've spent a lot of time educating and helping the trainers and other staff understand that euthanasia is sometimes the best option. And so we don't get a lot of pushback about it at Ocean Park, but at other facilities that we've gone to and helped at. So that's one of the things that's been wonderful about working over here is a lot of travel and a lot of outreach and helping out at other facilities. But many of those other facilities are much more traditional in their approach. And euthanasia is just, it's not even something they think about. They don't have euthanasia solution. And it would be just like the biggest change in approach for them if they did that. So that's been a an interesting and unexpected challenge as well. As I've been here a little bit longer, one of the other things that has really made an impression and changed the way that I practice is being in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a a very unique place in terms of its political relationships. So it's not an island, but it sometimes acts like an island. It's called a special administrative region of China. And so Hong Kong has for a very long time been 
a little bit insular and there have not been a lot of veterinary specialists in Hong Kong. And so it's changed even over the seven years that I've been here, but we don't have a veterinary dentist in Hong Kong. We have one or maybe now two boarded ophthalmologists in Hong Kong. We still don't have a behaviorist and there's probably several other specialties that we don't have. So I had grown up practicing Zoom medicine in the States where when you have a heart case, you call a cardiologist. When you have a complicated dental case, you call the dentist. And here there weren't those specialists. And if they did come, they would come twice a year from their country of origin and spend a couple weeks and help out at a bunch of different places. It's both good and bad. But one of the great things about it is that it really forces you to learn a lot of skills and develop in-house expertise that you wouldn't have developed if there was that access to specialists. On the other hand, it can be bad when there's a case that really, really needs it or really would benefit from it. And sometimes it's just simply not an option, or sometimes it means that we've put off a procedure for another month or two, because we know that the ophthalmologist will be visiting at that time. And so we'll do that cataract surgery when he's here. So that's been another interesting challenge about living here. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it sounds like something that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find, but I'm sure you've had to learn a lot very quickly. Are there any particular skills that you might want to share that you've learned when potentially you wouldn't have if the situation were otherwise? Yeah. So one of the big things is root canals. So we have an amazing veterinary dentist who does help out and has helped out for many years at Ocean Park. His name is Dr. Cedric Tut from South Africa, but he would come here generally, not during COVID times, but he used to come here probably three times a year. And he would spend one to two days with us at Ocean Park as a consultant and help us with complicated cases. And over the years, way predating when I came, my boss, Dr. Paolo Martelli, really, really is passionate about developing in-house expertise. And so he worked with Cedric to get those skills transferred over because it's so hard for us to have a dentist here. And he didn't want to only be able to do those procedures three times a year. So we actually have all been trained to do root canals. And because of that training, we have also trained many of our dolphins to have root canals under training, completely awake and without sedation. And so that's actually something that we do fairly routinely is endodontic therapy on our dolphins under training. And we will also do root canals on other species under anesthesia, for instance, pinnipeds, arctic foxes, otters, or or whatever the situation calls for. There's certainly some species or cases that we don't feel comfortable and that we will wait for Cedric to come or we'll find another solution like extraction. But we've all had the opportunity to learn to do endodontics, which is not something I would have learned to do in the US. Yeah, wow, that's super cool. I mean, obviously you hope an animal never has a root canal, but getting into an a dolphin or an otter, that's pretty cool. What have been some of the other rewarding aspects of moving to a new location and living in Hong Kong, working with these aquatic species. Yeah, the rewards definitely have outweighed the challenges. And that's why I've been here for seven years. So one thing I should mention is that it was posted as a three-year position. Historically, it's difficult for aquarium over here to attract people from foreign places and have them stay for a long time because I'm very far from home and most people want to go back home eventually. So I signed on for three years and in my interview, I said, yeah, I'm probably planning to stay for three years because I could 
couldn't imagine being away for much longer than that. But here I am seven years later, I will actually get permanent residency in November in Hong Kong, but I never expected to stay here for this long. So that's a testament to actually how wonderful it's been and how much I've loved it. Uh, and a big part of that has been the job and how much I love working at Ocean Park and with my colleagues. So that's just one of the big things is the culture. It's a wonderful place to be. And it's such an international city that it really allows you to have friends and colleagues from all over the world, which is different than practicing in the US. So as I mentioned earlier, of the veterinarians that I work with at Ocean Park, one is Italian, one is South African, one is Malaysian, and then there's me. And we actually have our first intern this year as well, which I can talk a little bit more about later. So that's been a, a huge reward is just having such an international group of colleagues and of course, friends as well. Also, one of the amazing things about working over here is having the opportunity to travel for work. Within the realm of veterinary medicine, we do travel and help out at other facilities. So I've been to mainland China many, many times before COVID to help with everything from specific cases where they needed our expertise or to give conferences or teaching or things of that nature. I've traveled to Thailand to help with a conference on cetacean stranding. And I've also helped out with procedures in Taiwan. And the other veterans at Ocean Park also travel extensively. So we have kind of a map showing all the different places that we've done outreach, which is just pretty amazing. And of course, every time we go to those places, we learn things as well. It makes us better practitioners and it makes us better human beings, to, you know, to do that kind of outreach. And some of those places have a lot of money and some of them have very little money and it's different situations. So most of them, what they have in common is that they need the expertise and we've developed that at Ocean Park. At all the places, they're incredibly grateful for the help. But at some of them, they really have no anesthetic equipment. And, you know, we bring everything with us and we try to teach them as well when we're there. And it's really also interesting seeing how creative people can be when they don't have a lot of money at the facility, but they have a lot of passion. And the thing that I have to say is no matter how good or bad a facility is, animal trainers all over the world are passionate about their animals. I have never walked into a facility in any country and felt that the trainers didn't care or didn't love their animals. And that's why they bring us over because they want to help the animals so much. And they may have, you know, a shoestring budget, but they're willing to pay for our flights or, you know, whatever it takes. We don't charge like a, a fee, but, you know, they'll pay for our travel and things. Just how much they want to do what's right for the animals even if the facility, you know, is not what we would think of as meeting a standard in North America. So that's been very, very rewarding. Yeah, I can imagine getting to work with those folks and most of us in the animal industry, we do it because we love the animals and we care so much for them. But I'm curious though, because your team is quite international. You don't have a veterinarian from Hong Kong on your team. Is there a veterinary school in your area? And if so, do they have any opportunities for people to look into things like zoological animals? That's a very good question. There was not a vet school in Hong Kong until about three years ago. City University in Hong Kong, we call it City U, just opened the very first vet school. And so their first class, I believe they're in third year right now. 
they have a very small class. Their first class had 13 students. But prior to that, if you were from Hong Kong and you wanted to be a vet, you had to go abroad for vet school. And that's expensive. It's very expensive because we all know as an international student at vet school, no matter where you go, you're going to pay a lot of money. So most Hong Kong veterinarians went to school in Australia or the UK. Those are the most common places for Hong Kong veterinarians to go. And that's actually still true because CityU has a very small program. So it's still the majority of students have to go abroad. That's amazing. I didn't realize that CityU was a new university in Hong Kong because Cornell partners with CityU and we will do Zoom sessions with them. We've sent professors over there to help their program. I worked on a online aquatic fish case program with them. So small world, things are coming together here. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's been really interesting and fun for me to see a vet school developing and, you know, to start to work with their students. So as our students are progressing through school, we're starting to have more interactions with them and having them come over for placements. So we had our first two City U students this summer actually come over for placements. So yes, they are introducing some aquatic and zoo education in their curriculum but it's very early days. And one of the problems with Hong Kong is because it's this strange sort of isolated non-island, but pseudo island, there aren't a lot of opportunities if you want to be a zoo or aquatics vet. So if you want to be an aquatics vet and you live in Hong Kong, the place you can practice is Ocean Park. End of story. There's not another aquarium. And if you want to see ornamental fish, that's different. If you want to do aquaculture, that's different. There's some opportunities. But students who are really interested in this field may have to move out of Hong Kong and live abroad themselves if they're really passionate about that. So that's a bit of a harsh reality that I sometimes have to chat with students about because, of course, a lot of people are interested in it. But it's kind of like if New York City, it's a similar size actually to New York City in terms of population. It's if New York City was acting as a country by itself, there's not a lot of places within that quote unquote country where you can practice zoo medicine. So you're a little bit limited and you may have to look farther afield. Very, very interesting. We don't always get to talk about some of the intricacies of veterinary medicine abroad on this podcast. So I'm really glad we're taking the time to talk about it today. I want to transition a bit now because when we were talking offline earlier, you were telling me that a lot of what you do in practice comes down to this tropical disease that you hadn't even touched upon before getting to Hong Kong, and that's meliodosis. So can you tell our listeners a bit about what this is, what it does to marine mammals, and then how it's become such a big part of your practice and how you treat for it? Sure. Yeah. So I just thought it would be an interesting thing to talk to you about because it is such a unique Hong Kong slash Asia issue. So meliodosis is a bacterial disease caused by Burkholderia pseudomallei, which is a bacteria that lives in soil. And it's a little bit similar to very ironically, the fungal disease that we have in Arizona, coccidioidomycosis or coccidioides imidis, in that it has a very narrow life zone where it likes to hang out and you really won't find it anywhere else. So I have now lived in two places and practiced in two places where there was a very strange disease that you will pretty much only encounter if you live in that place. And meliodosis is one of those diseases for Hong Kong. It also lives in other parts of Southeast Asia and even parts of Australia, 
But other than that, you generally won't find it elsewhere in the world other than very sporadic cases. So meliodosis is a problem mainly in the rainy season, which is right now. So summertime is meliodosis season. And we actually find it in the rainwater. So it washes out in the soil and actually is carried in the rainwater. And it can be carried in the rainwater here and not three feet over from here. So it is extremely like your own personal little rainstorm of meliodosis. We'll find it in little pockets around the park. And this has been a huge problem for marine mammals at Ocean Park because it turns out the marine mammals are exquisitely sensitive to meliodosis. Our colleagues many decades ago at Ocean Park were the ones who really had to deal with the brunt of it because at that time they were the ones to find out this bad news that marine mammals are, are highly sensitive. And so if you read the chapters about it, they're all written at Ocean Park by Ocean Park veterinarians. So it used to happen that after a heavy rainstorm at Ocean Park, they might lose one or two or three dolphins, actually have them die because of this disease. It affects humans as well. And humans also can develop a similar syndrome. So they basically get rapid septicemia and can die within 12 to 24 hours with very few premonitory signs. So it's a pretty scary disease. And when you say septicemia, that means that like everything's going wrong real quickly, right? Yeah, so septicemia means that there's bacteria in your bloodstream. So not just in one organ system, but it's actually gotten into your blood and spread to all your organs. So very, very bad, very severe form of any bacterial illness. So dolphins, and dolphins are kind of our our poster children and the animals that have most frequently been affected, but other animals can present this way as well. But in dolphins, what we'll usually see as the very first sign is an elevated body temperature. So during the rainy season, all of our dolphins have their temperatures taken twice a day for the entire meliodosis season. That begins in May and it extends through the end of October basically also typhoon season. And so if the body temperature is elevated, and it doesn't come down within an hour or two, or if it's extremely elevated, we will immediately go and take blood. And we will then make decisions based on the blood work results. Fortunately, Melio has very characteristic blood. And also fortunately, dolphins have extremely helpful blood work. That is not true of all species. You do blood work on an iguana, it might be dying and its blood looks completely normal. So you take a dolphin's blood and its white blood cell count would be high because it has a little bit of a tooth infection. Whereas many animals, they have to be very systemically ill to have blood work changes. So dolphins have exquisitely sensitive blood work and Melio has pretty classic changes on blood work. So the white blood cell count will go up, especially the neutrophils will go up. And they'll also have a high fibrinogen, which is a marker of inflammation. They'll also have an extremely low iron, so a precipitous drop in iron. And that's for a variety of reasons. It's one of the body's defense mechanisms against bacteria because bacteria like iron, but it's also because there's bacteria, the vertical area bacteria are using the iron. So it's doubly bad. And that's why the iron drops so low. Coupled with a fever, those are the things that really put us on high alert when we take blood that day and the animal had a high temperature and it has some or all of those signs on blood work. 
will start treatment for meliodosis right away. And the treatment that they've developed over time, and that has allowed us to no longer lose one or two or three animals when we have a big rainstorm, is intravenous ceftazidime, which is an antibiotic. And it has to be given three times a day, IV. So it is extremely labor intensive. And that treatment goes on for generally a minimum of 21 days. Oh, wow. Yes. So for three weeks, we are coming in for a midnight treatment every night. The training staff has to have usually at least six people there for every treatment because if the dolphin doesn't cooperate and doesn't present the tail and do a voluntary venipuncture, then they have to be restrained. So there has to be enough personnel there every time for a restraint. And every day we check the blood. Every day we run titers for meliodosis. We run PCR, we run blood cultures. And 21 days is the magic number because that is the longest it's ever taken for an animal to turn seropositive. Sorry, can you just define what seropositive means? Yeah, so it can take up to 21 days for their antibody level to turn positive, which we call seropositive or seroconversion. So they go from not showing a, an immune reaction to meliodosis to finally mounting an antibody response. And that confirms that's the infection that they have. So if we really believe an animal has meliodosis, we will treat for that entire 21 days. And if the titer is still negative, then we'll finally say, okay, it's not meliodosis, but we feel comfortable stopping the treatment at this point. If it is meliodosis, and we have confirmed it at any time during that treatment course, the animal then has to go on several months of oral eradication therapy, which is uh, amoxicillin clavulanic acid three times a day, but that's oral. So then the veterinarians no longer have to come in at midnight, but the trainers still have to come in at midnight and do that late night treatment. So it is intensive, but it has saved lives. So that's a big deal. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And you're saying that the months can be from May to October and then treatment is months. So this is a year round problem. You don't get any break from this. True. However, we don't have meliodosis cases every summer. We've actually only had one positive animal since I've been at Ocean Park and that animal went through the entire regimen, but we've had many, many, many that we thought were possibly melio, and we've done two to three weeks of the IV therapy and then determined that it's not melio, and so we feel comfortable stopping the treatment. So we're just extremely cautious about it, and that is our diagnosis until proven otherwise. So we take it very seriously. And the IV medication you were giving, was that an antibiotic? Yes. Okay. So since the IV medication you were giving is an antibiotic, I'm curious though, if you're doing so much prophylactically, if there is suspicion, are you at all worried about potential resistance down the road? We haven't seen any resistance to ceftazidime in our animals. We certainly haven't seen resistance of Burkholderia to ceftazidime. And I may be making it sound like we do this every day. We usually have, let's say, one to two cases per year that we think are meliodosis, and we may treat for one to two to three weeks and then determine that it's not. So it's not something that we're doing every day or kind of without giving it a lot of thought because it's a big gun, that antibiotic, and you're absolutely right. We don't want to breed resistance. But we also, during melio season, if everything fits, we can't take the chance that it is. So yeah, it's a little bit of a conundrum. Yeah. Now you said that this bacteria can be found in the rainwater. Is there any risk of transmission between the animals if they're in the same enclosure? It is not contagious between animals, thankfully. 
And interestingly, we also haven't seen massive outbreaks in animals in the same pool, even though they're all exposed to the same rainstorm. So like I said, it's like a personal rainstorm in one spot and then not right nearby. So fortunately, it usually tends to just be one animal at a time. Well, that's good. So the one animal that was positive and you treated and is now doing better, have you had to do any follow-up work on it to see how it's doing more long-term? Yeah, we have had recrudescence of meliodosis in other animals. In this particular dolphin, he has never had a recurrence of it. And because we take blood from all the dolphins every month as general health screening, we measure their meliodosis titer during all of those routine blood. And we know the positive cutoff very well. So we keep an eye on his meliodosis titer as well as all of those other dolphins that have had it way long ago in the past. Unfortunately, he hasn't had any long-term effects or any recurrence of that, but it is always on our radar because it can recur in the same animal again. Gotcha. Well, at least it hasn't come back. And kudos to you and your team. You just said that you're doing blood every month, though sometimes more than that. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, that always comes down to a great relationship between the animals and the trainers, as well as the animals, the trainers, and the veterinarians. So that's awesome that you've got such a good relationship that you can get those critical diagnostic tests that you need to, to save these animals. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and thank you for bringing that up. That's another thing that I love about Ocean Park in general is just that we really don't have a lot of drama or politics between the training staff, the curatorial team and the veterinarians. We work really well together. Everybody respects each other and everybody knows that each different team has different expertise. So that's been a wonderful part of working there as well. That's wonderful. It's nice to hear when there's teams working together and everyone's happy. But before I let you go, I know you're very involved with students and outreach. So can you highlight just some of the opportunities available to get connected with you and with Ocean Park? Absolutely. So I'm actually the preceptorship coordinator for our vet department. So I took that over in 2015. So I've been heading our student program since then. We are actually unique in that we will take students who are not in their final year of vet school. So we'll take students for placements as early as first year. We sometimes will take students in undergrad or even high school students from Hong Kong who are interested in spending some time with the vet department. And we tend to take two to three students at a time. So it's not as restrictive as the externships in the U.S. where, you know, you have to apply three years ahead of time and they only take one person at a time. It's very prestigious, you know, to get those positions, but we tend to have a little bit more of an open door policy. So at this moment, because of COVID, it is very hard for us to take international students because we can't let you in because Hong Kong won't, won't allow you in. But as soon as those restrictions ease, we're very open to taking international students. And really all you have to do is shoot me an email. And that information is, is pretty easy to find on our website. Yeah, I'll include it in the episode notes. Okay. Um, yeah, and we can set up a, a placement of one to two weeks or even longer if you're coming from farther away. We actually just started our very first internship program at Ocean Park. And as far as I know, it's the first zoological internship in Asia. That's pretty cool. And we're pretty excited about that. So we actually have our first intern now. She is 
in her third month with us. And it's similar to zoological internship programs in the U.S., but we are very interested in building up expertise within Asia. And we're not necessarily trying to prepare someone for a residency. We're really trying to prepare someone for a job in zoological or aquatic medicine and just elevate the standards and give people the skills and experience with high quality equipment and anesthesia and things like that so that they can go on to work at other facilities in the region and have an elevated level of care. So we're excited about that program and hoping to continue to grow it in the future. So certainly if, if you're interested in the internship, you can contact me. Right now, it's only open to Hong Kong residents because of the restrictions, but in the future, that might change a bit. But we're just excited to be able to help, especially regionally in that capacity to build up the quality and, and get people trained up. That's amazing. I'm sure there's lots of students now anxious for the borders to open so they can come visit you. Yes. Well, you're very welcome. Well, Dr. Turgan, I have learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for being here on Aquadox. You're so welcome. It was great to talk to you and my very first time on a podcast. So thanks for a great experience. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Turgan for being on the show this week, our sponsors WAVMA and AAFE, and all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our recently launched TikTok to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra minute, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.